0: Hi, this is Liz Weaver, and you are listening to the Learning Success Podcast, an information-packed podcast with the latest news, information, and tips to help you overcome a learning difficulty. For anyone suffering from a reading difficulty, writing difficulty, a math difficulty, a focus problem, dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, or ADHD, this is the place for you. The Learning Success Podcast is brought to you by LearningSuccessSystem.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learning Success Podcast. And today we have Miriam Saunders with us. Let me tell you a little bit about Miriam. Miriam is a licensed Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. She is, has specialized training in ADHD and autism. She has specialized training in coaching for ADHD. She is an adjunct professor in the Counseling Psychology Graduate Program at the Dominican University. She is a certified mediator and has worked for Marin County Office of Education as a special education mediator. She's a panelist for Marin County Family Courts Case Settlement Conferences, and she is a published children's book author with a book titled My Whirling, Twirling Motor, and I believe one coming out called My Wandering, Dreaming Mind. Uh, she uses mindfulness, mindfulness, Training, cognitive behavioral interventions, communication, and behavioral modification training to positively help empower clients to uncover their strengths and solve their greatest struggles. She is a mom of three teens, two with ADHD and one with auditory processing disorder and an anxiety. Hello, Miriam.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here today.
1: Welcome. We're really glad to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice to start off with?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, as you mentioned, I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I work almost exclusively with parents that have children with ADHD uh, and or autism. Um, And I came about specializing in those two things in particular because I have uh, children um, who struggle with those issues myself. So it it seemed like a a natural progression. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I have worked with children directly in the past. Um, At this stage, though, I'm focusing more on working directly with parents because I feel that that's really where we see the most impact.
1: Yeah, I can absolutely agree with that. I think that the parents' reactions to it and their emotions have such a so much to do with it. Um, so that actually leads us right into one of the first questions in your book. Um, the was am I correct in saying that you the, the the first book is is obviously out the My Whirling Twirling Motor and is the second book out or is that is that coming out?
2: No, second book is not out yet. It will okay. be out within the year. The illustrator is uh, working on the, the drawings as we speak, I believe.
1: Okay, fantastic. That'll be exciting. Good. So uh, in, so you talk about the, the wonderful list, and uh, this is something we actually do, call, we call it catching in the act. Uh, but can you explain uh, how the wonderful list is, is, what it is, and how it's helpful for guiding behavior?
2: Yeah, so I conceived of the story because this is one of the first interventions that I um, ask my clients to do when they come to meet with me, uh-huh. um, because children with ADHD specifically, um, and most frequently children with the hyperactive presentation of ADHD are, um, they usually spend their days being told everything that they've done wrong, right. which is, over time has a drastic impact on on a child's self-esteem because ADHD is an impulse control disorder if they have the hyperactive kind and oftentimes the these poor t- children find themselves behaving in ways that they weren't even able to control and happens before they you know even knew that they had done what they did
3: uh-huh. so to
2: be told that you're constantly doing something wrong when it's outside of your control is really detrimental to your self-esteem um, and so I uh, have parents, Write what we call a wonderful list, which is you know grab a notebook or use your iPhone, and try to how you call it catch your kids doing something right. And they we find that they do things right all day. They might not be spectacular; they're not you know solving world peace or anything, but they're picking up their socks or they're bringing a plate you know from the table to the sink without being told. Um, Little little tiny things that they do right, and not only does it help than to read that list to them at the end of the day. But it also helps to reframe the way we look at our children as parents, because when we're so focused on the negative, um, it doesn't feel good. It's not joyful parenting.
1: Right, right. And Framing is really everything. And of course the quote, you know, what we focus on, it grows, right? Yeah. Uh yeah, we used to use. Uh, in, I, I'm, I was 20 years as a kung fu instructor, and so we would have a, a real big mix of children with ADHD. When, early on in my career, we had a elementary school uh, teach, uh, not teacher, uh, principal who brought his daughter in and saw what we did, and then he sent us. I think every ADHD kid in his entire school to our classes. <laughs> And along with that, he sent us his dyslexics and his dyscalculics and his dysgraphia and and everything. So um, we had quite a quite a, a testing ground and figuring things things out. But one of the things we would do is use a, kind of the, the wonderfulist theory and. Um, at the same time a lot for a a kid with learned helplessness and that comes up a lot and we could use a kid who might be the class clown on one hand who was trying to get attention and the one with learned helplessness who was trying to just uh, be absorbed into the background and not noticed Mm -hmm. And, and we would try and we would consciously just look and look and look for for the tiniest thing from the kid with learned helplessness to get their behavior changed to where they would try hard because they wouldn't try at all Mm -hmm. and then at the same time we were ignoring the kid who was acting out and and so then finally when we could compliment the one with the learned helplessness and do that over and over until you just have to find the tiniest thing and they almost didn't, didn't believe that they did something right and you know um and so we could control the whole class um, and, and bring them by by that methodology so um, so I, I really love what you do and then we would of course we would teach the parents how to do the same so um, the that also brings into the the concept of of what something else we would do called what i 'm good at and the idea that that self confidence and self esteem are transferable from one activity. Uh, to another and this comes up in Amy Cuddy's book she talks about having a list of things that a child is good at and then if they come into something that they're not good at then talking then going through that list of, of what they're good at to raise confidence um, can you speak about that and raising? Hope? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think that if you, even as an as adults, right, if you can achieve mastery or a sense of agency in one area, uh-huh. it's such an empowering feeling to to know that. Oh, okay, I, I could do that. It's probably now I have this positive experience that I can transfer to something else. I know what it takes. I know that it's not just going to come automatically. I have to work hard at it. I have to practice. And then eventually I can achieve this sense of the thing. So yeah, if they, if you have a child who's never experienced or told that they, um, you know, either in the learned helplessness child, have a sense of agency or in the child who's always, acting out and being told what they're doing wrong, that they actually do things right, then how can they transfer that across and generalize it to other parts of their life?
1: Right, right. You use the word mastery. I'm a big believer in that, in in, in mastering anything, just to, um, to learn the process. And then that gives you the confidence that you can master something else.
2: Right. And it doesn't, when we speak of mastery, it doesn't have to be like, oh, you know, I've become a black belt or I've sure. achieved this great, great thing it really is just mastering a certain behavior it could be mastering brushing your teeth correctly or you know a bedtime routine or it doesn't right. have to be this huge impossible task
1: right right and actually a question that i have later i'll go ahead and jump to that is that um the idea so you mentioned um you know dopamine and that ad uh, children with adhd are maybe may lacking dopamine and so the um the, we use the concept of Kaizen. So which means just breaking things down into tiny things. And so that every time that you, you master that tiny task, you're getting that little spurt of dopamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak about that, about that, about how small those, that mastery and, and, and is that a technique you would use to, to build confidence? Of, of right, it, it it all,
2: yeah, it absolutely all ties together from the sense of mastery and, something like The Wonderful List and and getting Uh these hits of praise because um, dopamine is what stimulates the area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which Uh is where the higher level thinking takes place. Um, It's where you organize and plan and remember things. It controls your sense of time and inhibition control. And if you don't have enough gas powering that part of your motor, it's not going to work properly, right? It's just... So Uh studies have shown brains. We've done brain scans in children with ADHD, particularly that shows a, that that part of the brain is actually um, on average three years behind in development
3: Uh and that
2: it's also not getting as much dopamine to it. So it's just not getting stimulated enough. So when you add something like praise, which increases dopamine because dopamine is the pleasure neurotransmitter, if you will. It's the the one that gets um, created when we're happy or we're experiencing something we love or someone's praising us. Um, So if you get praise or you have that sense of accomplishment and it creates joy, that will create dopamine, which will then allow the prefrontal cortex to achieve even at, at a higher level
1: right right yeah and i've i've read a study where um you know you know that aha moment of learning is is a dopamine but is dopamine being secreted but it doesn't matter the size of the of the learning it doesn't it it, it doesn't matter the size of the win
2: right, right exactly but to your earlier point right even the smallest the
1: smallest, right.
2: sense of achievement of, you know, I did one more problem on the worksheet than I did yesterday
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Um, can, can give that little dopamine hit.
1: So uh, tell me about, I've also heard you use the the, the phrase to fill the self-esteem bucket. I think I'm mm-hmm. uh, quoting mm-hmm. her that. Um, so is, uh, tell me about self-confidence and self-esteem as um, I kind of feel that that is a prerequisite for being a good learner. Um, do you, How do you think uh, self-confidence and, and self-esteem affects just the, the way the brain functions as being a, a good learner?
2: Right. I think if you have been told over and over again that you do things wrong and that you just and your own personal experience is that you struggle at something and you just can't seem to get it done as easily as, you know, Johnny who sits next to you in math class, then it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that you start to believe that yourself. Well, I'm just no good at this. And if I believe I'm no good at this, then what's the point in trying because I'm not really ever going to accomplish it anyway, whether it's learning to play soccer or learning your multiplication table. Sure. So,
1: um, of course, now, if they want to avoid that, would that lead into um, some negative behaviors? Would they use usually, that?
2: Yeah, yeah. usually, especially in the sense of, in, in the case of hyperactive ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, because they, they tend to be more noticeable. Inattentive ADHD, you know, is quiet in the back of the classroom, often goes undiagnosed for a while. Okay. Um, With the hyperactive children, they're the the, quote-unquote troublemakers. They're they're the ones who are constantly being told, don't touch that, quiet down, it's not talking time, don't talk out of turn. Um, And they're not finishing their work, they're forgetting it at home. Um, And so they if they reach the point where they feel like, well, I'm no good at this anyway, no matter how hard I try, I'm still doing it wrong. So what's the point? Then that's who they feel they are. And they will probably, you know, start to elevate those behaviors because that's who they are, right? That's who everybody thinks I am. I I can get a laugh at least if maybe if I goof out. So maybe I'll try that approach get the, you know, dopamine hit off the laughter from my classmates, even though I know it's going to get me in trouble.
1: That makes perfect sense. Right. Right. So the, um, so the inattentive, you mentioned the inattentive uh, ADHD would be more the wallflower. Um,
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have the hyperactive piece or they don't have um, the impulse control piece. So they tend not to be children that act out. They are the children that will um, seem to be daydreaming in class, will forget things at home a lot or forget where they put things from. And but, but because they're not acting out, they're not troublemakers, they, they often don't get, you know, they're not the squeaky wheel, so they often don't get the grease until, you know, grades really start deteriorating maybe this is the child that's not learning to read as quickly or um you know doesn't turn homework in all the time and so grades start getting impacted so
1: so that's when it gets noticed there's no other real common indicators that people would notice Uh,
2: no because there aren't typically the behavior issues right so you know, and there isn't really homework. Well, there shouldn't be anyway in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Right. You know, so right. When we start to um, expect higher reasoning, when you start to read to learn instead of learning to read in third grade, um, you know, that might be when, uh-oh, what's going on with this child? Um, starts to become a little more noticeable. Um, percentage-wise, also ADHD, inattentive type, tends to be diagnosed more in girls. Of course, it's not exclusive.
1: So I I, actually, that leaves me something interesting. I just recently, we have an online um, dyslexia screener. And uh, I took the data from that screener and just did a really deep dive into that data. Um, And, and I I found quite a few interesting things. But one of the interesting things that just was really baffling to me was that I found that the these are parents taking the screener for the for the child and and mm-hmm. just filling in and i found that the um the boys that were the the screener was being taken for the median age that was between 5 and 7 i uh, five maybe 5 and eight, 5 and 8 the girls was between 14 and 16 wow and these are these are girls that are having problems in reading so whether it's dyslexia or possibly the entertainment ADHD. i don't know if there's a relationship here um but that just really that stands out to me that this inattentive adhd would not get noticed Uh,
3: yeah
2: that's interesting i mean i i'm not all that surprised i think because girls have a tendency to be you know i hate to stereotype across the board but right it's just that frequently girls might have a tendency to be more People pleasers, and will just push through and try to go unnoticed and just do what they have to do. And so they might not. And yeah. there could be a correlation between inattentive ADHD and
1: yeah, you know. yeah. That's uh, I mean everybody I've spoken to has had the same thing that girls typically ha- are a higher on the agreeableness scale, and so yeah. therefore would would go and and then you know they they use I've I've had girls in my class, and the way they'll av- avoid things is being cute. Uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, and, and it works, it worked on, you know, it, and so, um, they can divert your attention from, from problems in a way that, um, they they can be pretty skilled at it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, it's amazing that the coping factors that are developed, right? Right. Yeah. So if a child is really, really struggling, and then they're starting to either show extreme lack of self-confidence or self self-esteem or a lot of negative behaviors um should a parent back off of the academics at that point until something is resolved i see a lot of kids that just get pushed harder into more academics when that may not when that may be causing some more problems
2: yeah, I am a big proponent in the parental backing off, especially when the children are in elementary school and even up to eighth grade, provided your child's, you're not trying to get your child into a private school because uh-huh. no one is ever going to see those grades. Right, The grades right. don't matter at all. But what really does matter is that your child is learning how to learn, has a joy for learning and feels that learning is something they can accomplish and if you are, you know, having to sit down with your child and strong arm them into getting their homework done, then wouldn't it be better to figure out what's the underlying issue here? How can we tackle that, give the child the support they need so that they will have the possibility of being more successful later in their academic career? But, um Continuing to ask of them what's asked of a neurotypical learner or a learner without a learning disability, um, as if there's, you know, they have no struggle, is just frustrating for them. And who would want to continue doing that? I wouldn't. I would shut down. Sure, sure. The other uh, piece that's important to remember, too, especially early on, is that if, if you at home are having to help your child that much, where you have to sit next to them and essentially, you know, do their homework for or with them to the degree that they can't do it independently, then you're robbing the school of the opportunity to understand what's going on with this child. Because all the teacher sees is all right, something unusual is happening in my class, but gosh, this child manages to get their homework done perfectly well and all the answers are correct. Um, And then the parent gets upset because the school won't give them the help that they feel they need. So I often will consult with parents and say, I know this is going to be difficult, but you need to let your child fail right now. Um,
1: I I can see now why you you counsel the parents. (laughs) This is making a a lot of sense. Yeah. What are the symptoms of ADHD?
2: Well, there are 18 different symptoms, so we can't list them all, but, um, you know, as we mentioned before, there, there are actually three different types. There's hyperactive, inattentive and combined type. And you just need a minimum of six in order to, to um, meet the criteria for the diagnosis. Um, it does have to be diagnosed before the age of 12 or the symptoms at least. I'm sorry. It doesn't have to be diagnosed, but the symptoms need to have appeared before the age of 12. And it it Uh, does. Why is that? uh, Well, I guess you'd have to ask the, um, uh,
3: the DSM-5. That's
2: the the diagnostic manual that we use, but they determine it used to be earlier and it used to be seven. And in the latest, um, revision of the manual they they increased it to 12 which would capture a lot more um, mm-hmm. children that might have that and you can diagnose it as an adult um, absolutely if that adult ca- adult can reference recalling having had those symptoms before the age of 12
3: I see. Um, okay.
2: Correct. and the other the other thing is that this a, a level of impairment has to occur in two different settings so if you have a child who's Um, an angel in school and and just uh, you know awful at home that child does not have adhd because it's not something that can be controlled so if they can control it in one setting and not the other then that's not what's going on
1: that makes a lot of sense right what should a parent do if they suspect that the child has adhd
2: The the first thing to do is to visit your pediatrician, because a lot of different physiological things can mimic ADHD. And it's really important to rule those things out before just jumping to the conclusion that your child has ADHD. And some of those things are things like a sleep disorder. You might not even know that your child has sleep apnea, um, food allergies, depression, anxiety, um, experiencing a level of trauma, Um, so there, you know, there are other things that could be going on and it's important to really understand. Um, then if you rule everything out, your pediatrician will likely give you a screening tool, which is a questionnaire that a parent and a teacher will fill out. Um, and if you meet, you know, you check off enough boxes, the pediatrician can give that diagnosis. Um, at that point you have, you know, a couple of different options. One, if there's a a level of impairment happening at school where learning is being impacted, you can ask the school to do an evaluation. Um, and if you have the means, you can, um, get a licensed psychologist to do a neuropsychological evaluation, which I highly recommend if that's something that you can do. Um, it breaks all of the processes down, and so that even if you get the diagnosis of ADHD, this gives you a much better picture of really what's happening behind that diagnosis. Is it an auditory processing problem, a visual processing problem, is it a working memory issue? Um, it's just a lot more information.
1: So any any of those can be the underlying cause?
2: Well, the underlying cause, you know, we don't really know. We, right. we know okay. that it's partially that there's a a very high uh, genetic factor, but Uh it could also be a function of environment, not parenting environment. I don't mean that, but I mean, you know, it could be something that happened at birth that that causes the symptoms. Um, But no, what I mean is that ADHD, even though it's not called a spectrum disorder because there are 18 different symptoms and you could have any combination of them, it's going to present differently for everyone. Uh-huh. And um, one child might have really, really awful working memory. Another child m- might have terrible auditory processing. And, and those might be the underlying um, what's, what's feeding the behavior, feeding the symptoms that are most obvious.
1: I see. So it sounds like with, the, with those symptoms, then, then this could be really highly comorbid with like dyslexia or dyscalculia or any of those things. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, ADHD can be comorbid with a whole host of, uh, of things, including autism spectrum disorder, anxiety, but um, also, yes, very highly correlated with a learning disability. Um,
1: so would they always have a learning disorder? Oops.
2: No, no, they don't always have a learning disability. So you might have a child with hyperactive ADHD who's a whippersnapper in school, you know, uh-huh. who learns to read really quickly, great at math, Um, their main problem is they just don't pay attention. And so they miss material because they're not listening, but it's not a processing issue. It's, you know, it's not a, um, there's nothing technically happening uh, that's impeding their ability to learn to read, for example. And so that child would not qualify for special education under uh, a, under a specific learning disability. They would um, qualify if they did uh, under other health impaired.
1: Okay, so I, I hear that type of child. You, you hear the parents sometimes say, My child is just bored in school, and that's why they acted. Is that kind of that child that you're describing there?
2: Well, that, yeah, I mean, that child isn't getting dopamine to the prefrontal cortex. So bored. And that <laughs> dopamine allows someone to pay attention when the material is boring to them. Um, okay. And so. Yes, that technically they might just be bored in school, whereas, you know, the kid who sits next to him is also bored, but still can push through and pay attention.
1: Okay. Okay. So what uh, what type of therapy is best for a child with ADHD?
2: Well, the CDC recommends um, for young children in particular um, that the first line therapy is parent behavior training. Um because parents with the child most and young children don't really have the cognitive ability to access therapy, remember what they're supposed to do and, you know, and really generalize an hour of therapy a week into their life, especially when they're experiencing um, a disorder that impacts inhibition control. Sure. Um, then, you know, beyond that, um, There's the most research, of course, has been done on medication. Medication is a highly, highly personal choice and one that should be just thoroughly discussed with your pediatrician or a psychiatrist because everyone feels differently about it. Um, But, you know, the general first line protocol would be a combination of behavior therapy and medication. That's what they've found to be most impactful. Beyond that, um, there have been a lot of studies done on things like martial arts. Um, uh-huh. And that actually has been shown to help. Yoga has been shown to to help. Uh, mindfulness practice. Um, things we don't have a lot of evidence on are, you know, but but that you'll hear a lot about are uh, food dyes um, uh-huh. having having a big big impact. Um, yeah. And you know, we just don't we don't have a lot of. Um, studies to show that that's really okay. yeah that that's actually having that kind of an impact
1: that's almost one of those things that seems accepted that it's that's to be true and,
2: uh, you know if you have a child who reacts to a food diet you will swear up and down that that's what's going on and it might be for your particular child but across uh, the board they haven't been able to uh-huh. um, ha- to do a study that really shows that that's what you know has an impact on all adhd behaviors
1: Interesting. What is parental behavior training?
2: Well, it's very, very specific to, you know, that particular family, um, because there are a lot of, of uh, factors involved in what they might need, including, you know, does this child have a comorbid learning disorder or depression and anxiety? Are there siblings in the household? Are they younger or older? Um, has the child been diagnosed and for how long is the child aware of their diagnosis, things like that. Uh
3: Um,
2: And then beyond that, you know, what are the particular behaviors that are causing the most impairment, not only in school, but also with the family dynamics. Um, And then we just start to attack those one by one. And the first thing we look at is, is how is the parent reacting to those behaviors? Sure, All
3: right.
2: um, Because nine times out of 10, the reaction is one that you might give to a neurotypical child that ought to, quote unquote, know better. Um, and it's just not a helpful reaction for a child with an impulse control disorder because they didn't really, they couldn't control what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so acting them asking them to not do it again or punish them because of something they did generally just won't have an impact and so the parent and child wind up getting more and more and more frustrated
1: okay so is this like is this a form of therapy or or more education
2: it's i i really like to call it more training it's not therapy you know therapy is um is working more on your emotional um your emotional side and and Mm -hmm. This really is more specific to, okay, let's problem solve. Let's, let's look at, you know, what are you doing and how can you do it differently to get a different outcome?
1: Finding what works. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Okay. Why would it not work? What would could get in the way of, of, uh,
2: you know, unfortunately, um, parenting a child with ADHD in particular is exhausting. It, it takes a lot of forethought, a lot of what I call preventative parenting. Okay. Um when you're you're having to be two steps ahead of your child and really thinking about, okay, we're going to a barbecue on Sunday, it's at you know 130. Does my you know, my child might be really tired because that's when they nap, or my child wow. might be really hungry and hate the food at the barbecue, like just really, really thinking ahead. Or maybe even deciding barbecues just aren't in our future at the moment. Um, All right. Okay. Um, and a lot of parents are in a state of denial. They don't want their lives to be impacted like that. They, they want to go to that barbecue and they, they want their child to just do what they're told. Um, mm-hmm. So they will fight the fact that actually they're the ones that have to change first. I see, um, and change is difficult, you know you're yes um, often this isn't the road that they thought they would be on, It's not what they signed up for. Um, uh-huh. There are a lot of parents that you know just really wish somebody could work with their child and change their child um, and
1: uh-huh,
2: yeah, and it just unfortunately, it's not uh-huh. that easy.
1: Yeah, when we when we shut down, we ran our, our kung fu school for twenty years, and it was really uh, we hated to shut it down, but we we had to. And a few parents came to us and said, "Who will discipline my child now?" And uh, I, I mean, I just like I, we had no answer. We didn't know what to. So I would have given them your number. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh gosh. Yeah. No, it's, I've been there, you know, I had, I have two of my three have ADHD and I remember those years and they were not easy or fun. It's really hard. And, and, you know, most people who don't have kids with issues don't understand how hard it is either. Uh Um, Parents will frequently have a sense of, some kind of parenting failure you know like if i had only done something differently right. my child would be different or shame you know I, I can't bring my kid to a barbecue because he's probably gonna have a meltdown and crawl under the table um and right. and right. there's a lot of judgment by you know people who don't understand why can't you why can't your child behave you know why gosh you know, this child right. some discipline.
1: Yeah. So you've mentioned several emotions. Are there like stages of those emotions that they will go through?
2: Absolutely. It's, it's very similar to the stages of grief because in fact, what they're grieving is the parenting experience they thought they were going to have.
1: Right. That's exactly where it was going. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, you know, there's denial and anger and, you know, and sadness and, and everything that you might feel when you're grieving something.
1: Right. So so the parents may need therapy at that point, right? They, they're...
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, just because you might be getting um, parent behavior tra- training so that you can help your child doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about getting some just straight on therapy for yourself as well, because... Uh-huh. Those are some really big feelings. And then people will feel guilt because they feel that way, right? Like I, I'm supposed to just unconditionally love my child. child. I have a lot of parents that when I give them permission or I voice in the room that it's possible you might not like your child, then, you know, they'll just erupt sobbing because it's true and they've held that in and it's embarrassing and they feel terrible but it's true they love their child but they don't always like their child
1: yes that's very understandable wow okay so i've got a couple of questions here who's um let me put these in context they're from a friend of mine who has a child who is i I think he's probably 20 21 um inattentive adhd Mm Mm-hmm. Very late diagnosed. Um, I'm not sure when, but maybe just recently. uh, Went off to college. It didn't go so well. And uh, he's now dropped out. Um, And so these are are, are questions from from her. And she says, what are some practical ways for individuals with inattentive inattentive ADD to motivate themselves and deal with uh, changing their entrenched behaviors after diagnosis? So this is an older child.
2: Okay. So there are, are two things to, well, more than two things to consider, but um, you know, because of the late diagnosis that this ad- now adult is likely to have a lot of self-esteem issues, right. That they've been struggling for years and years and years with no understanding of why, why can't I do what seems to come so easily to everybody else and um, they've been, you know, just continually labeled as forgetful or you're not trying hard enough. Uh-huh. Um, and and they haven't had the benefit of any type of training to understand, well, sure, this doesn't come easily to me, but these are the five things I need to do in order to succeed. I need to use my agenda or my iPhone in a totally different way than anyone else. I need to set reminders. I need to put my keys in the same place all the time. You know, just little tips and tricks. They don't have those. Um, The second thing to consider is in order for someone with ADHD to really achieve like a greater success, the best path for them is one where they're passionate because that passion will create dopamine, which will always help their prefrontal cortex. So if you love to dance but you are a finance and accounting major because your parents think that that's you know going to be a better breadwinner. Um, you're not likely going to succeed in that, and you probably will drop out, and then you won't earn anything. Um, uh-huh. So, so really drilling down and understanding you know what are what are this person's interests, and is there a way for them to um, go down that path? Instead of this, well, I got to go to college and I got to study, you know, psychology because that's what everyone, that's what I'm expected to study. Um, then if if you can garner a level of excitement for whatever that path is, I would highly recommend if someone has the financial wherewithal to hire a coach, an ADHD adult coach. An ADHD coach It's not a a once-a-week session. It doesn't work. This person usually will be more of a daily, like, 15-minute check-in or sometimes even a text kind of relationship. But that person with ADHD needs um, what we call a scaffold. They Uh need, um, until they learn those skills we talked about in, in point number one, they need someone on the outside kind of doing those skills for them and reminding them of those skills constantly and re, really reinforcing that behavior until they can leave the the bird's nest on their own.
1: Right. Okay. So it's a behavioral training. So, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Okay. So the second question she asks is, um, Practically speaking, such a low percentage of those with ADHD and ADHD are able to finish a traditional college education. So, is it practical for them to even embark on it?
2: Well, yeah, I'm not sure that I would agree with the low percentage finishing. I think it really is a question of you know are they in school for something they're interested in? Um, A lot of Children with ADHD will absolutely thrive in college because this is the first time they can choose their classes. They're not stuck uh-huh. in high school just for, you know, a dreary eight hours being being taught things they're not interested in. Um, so the question really is, are they able to major in something that lights their fire? Uh-huh. And and if not, then you know maybe it's okay to look at something else. Maybe this person would rather be a masseuse or you know a barber or right. <laughs> just you know something that just really interests them. Right. Yeah. Okay. Very good. I do hear
1: in the among the in the entrepreneurial world a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, claiming that their ADHD is is the source of their success in a way.
2: Well, yeah, the thing about people with ADHD and, and autism also is their ability to hyper-focus. Yes. Um, so when and when they're interested in something, then they can just lock onto that and do it for hours on end. And so a lot of parents will say, my child can't have attention deficit disorder you know he or she can sit at a lego table for hours on end or play video games for hours on end there's no attention deficit there at all but they're just misunderstanding that it's the attention required um, when something is boring Mm -hmm. that's that's where the deficit is
1: okay so if they have a passion then they'll have incredible attention yeah yeah that, that answers a lot of questions about some of my students. Okay. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> huh, okay. So um, then uh, as an adult diagnosed, what's the best way to overcome uh, the emotional trauma from not having a diagnosis until adulthood?
2: Well, I would send you to a therapist for that one. Cause emotional trauma is usually best dealt with in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. Okay. Um, And, you know, there really is a certain amount of um, emotional trauma, although we use the word trauma very lightly these days. Um, Uh But, you know, to a degree, you've had a lifetime of, of thinking that you're a failure when that's really not the case at all. You know, it's just a question of your brain functioning differently from other people's. Um, I, I often like to use the analogy that everyone around you just seems to know how to naturally speak Chinese and you're being asked to speak Chinese and no one's bothering to teach it to you. And they're getting increasingly frustrated with you that you're not speaking it. And you start to feel like, well, I should be able to speak it. Everyone else can. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: so as an adult, you've had years and years and years of that feeling, um, so I would say go to a therapist to deal with the emotions, but find an ADHD coach, somebody who can really look at, well, you know, what is your particular struggle? Is it time management? Um, or is it forgetfulness? And there are so many tips and tricks that you can work on. And if a coach is too expensive, there's so many books as well. So okay. There's a lot of self-help out okay. there. Great.
0: Do you have a smart child who is struggling in school? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like the struggle is holding your child back from their true potential? Maybe the anxiety and worry over your child's future just beats you down every day. You don't have to live that way. Learn how to stop a learning disability from becoming a life disability. A child with a learning disability is stressful for the child and the parent. The disability may be eroding their confidence and shattering their self-esteem. Other people may perceive your child as unintelligent and antisocial. If not addressed and fixed early, the child may develop permanent challenges later in life when looking for a good job or meeting a potential spouse. Our current school system does not know how to properly help our children, but at Learning Success, we do. We've created a system you can easily do at home with your child, and with just 15 minutes per day after school with your child, you can save them from a life of struggle and heartbreak. Learn how to unleash your child's potential and embrace their true intelligence. As a special gift for being a loyal podcast listener, we're going to give you a free trial of the Learning Success System. Try it out absolutely free for 15 days. If it is not the perfect fit to help your child succeed in school and in life, just cancel before the trial ends and pay nothing. You even get to keep the free bonuses. Go to www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast to get your free trial now. You'll be so happy you did once you see the great grades your child is capable of getting. Imagine being so proud of your child when they bring home a great report card and hand it over with a beaming smile. Get your free trial now at www.learningsuccesssystem.com forward slash podcast. You've got nothing to lose except the stress and anxiety that is holding you and your child down. I'll see you there.
1: Let's jump to, you touched before on sensory input, and um, again, can you mention, what what role do you think sensory input plays in ADHD, or just the ability to focus?
2: So, sensory input is going to be one of those uh, things that some children with ADHD have and others might not, um, and so... You know, if you have a child who absolutely hates certain noises or um, sights or or textures, um, the the feel of some types of food in their mouth, then you know those aren't children that are just being difficult. Those are children that have sensory issues, and they're very, very real to those children. Sure. Uh sensory issues can make you feel like you want to crawl out of your own skin and you can't Uh get away. Um, So they're not going to impact every child, but some, some children will have them. And it's, um, you know, it absolutely can be something else that just gets in the way of learning. If you're bothered by your underwear tag, how are you supposed to pay attention in school all day when this is something that's just making you, you know, want to get out of your own body?
1: Right, right. How about balance as a sensory input?
2: Again, I do know that there are some children that have balance issues or have fine motor problems or gross motor problems. You know, it's not, it's definitely not across the board. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been some, you're probably familiar with um, some treatment facilities that open up that work on those kind of balancing issues. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not aware of any particular studies that show that, that that will be any kind of a cure-all, but there are a lot of parents that feel for their children with balance issues that it's very helpful.
1: Right. Um, I, I know. As a As a martial artist, one of the tricks that we do um, as a fighting trick is that we learn to, to can absolutely control another person's balance, and it actually shuts off their brain they can't do anything because you've gone into a system one brain function, you know, and there's there's so much cognitive processing needed to maintain balance. And so um, on the other side of that, we develop our own balance. And, and I've seen a lot of kids with different learning disabilities just by developing balance and learning proprioception uh, seems to have a pretty big effect. Um, I know that there's one researcher who talks about vestibular input as a cause for like dyslexia and things. I don't, I don't know that that's a hundred percent true, but I, I think that there's some, some lines of thought there.
2: Yeah. And all, in addition to martial arts, um, I personally, my daughter was a horseback rider, my daughter with ADHD mm-hmm. and you know, similar, it's a similar type of balancing side to side, um, impact on the body you know so there are a lot of people that also believe that something like that can be super helpful so again yeah if that's something that is challenging for your child um Uh, we we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of our understanding between you know what we do with our bodies and how that impacts our the areas of our brain that um
1: yeah. 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 That was actually somewhere I was going to go with that with because I noticed you have a horse on your website. Bo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so in, in martial arts, our primary stance is called a horse stance or horse riding stance. And it feels exact. I grew up riding horses, Western style. Okay. I have no clue if it's when it comes to English, but I did write Western style every day of my life from age like seven on. So, um, and they're the feeling of the stance in um, martial arts is exactly the same in our martial art. We're pushing the heels out. We're pushing the heels down. um, And of course you're posting, you know, there's a huge crossover. So uh, on your website, you did mention different types of mind body exercises. And I was going to mention that I would actually consider horseback riding one of those. Yeah. Uh, One thing and going back. So going back to balance, most people consider you know the vestibular input as as your primary source of balance, and maybe a secondary the secondary source as your your vision, your your sense of the horizon. Um, and I would argue that your uh the your feeling in your feet um is actually should be your primary source of balance. And um, of course, that's what horseback is going to train. Horseback riding is going to train that and and really develop that. And since I, you know, I think that that if there is a little bit of balance off, that it it can so quickly override the brain and lose attention that maybe there's something to look at there. Maybe you were inadvertently helping your daughter out by the horseback riding.
2: Right, right. I know it was. We we lucked out with that one. Um, we tried martial arts with her. <laughs> she
1: did yeah, yeah that, that's a deep subject there are a lot of different martial arts out there and and uh, I don't see all of them as having the the same benefits as, as that so um, it's the, the the very unfortunate thing is martial arts has become a sport in in the United States
3: mm.
1: and, and it's not a sport it's a discipline right, so, right. It, and and that changes just everything in the way it's taught. so anyway so t- tell me about mind body in general and how that plays a role in focus and learning.
2: Well, you know, back to your, to your yeah, to your point about balancing. You know, whether um, strengthening a person's ability to balance is what ultimately overcomes their learning issue or not. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I think it's one component. I, I wasn't trying to claim that it was everything. Yeah.
2: yeah no, no. I mean, it, I, I'm saying it could, we just don't, we, you know, I don't really know. But what I do know is that the, that type of training, that type of, you know, where, whether it's a martial art or yoga or horseback riding mm-hmm. um, does um, allow these children an opportunity to really feel their body in space when they might not otherwise even right. think about it. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of these children do have visual spatial processing issues and yes. a lot of difficulty controlling their bodies. You know, my, my oldest daughter would sometimes fall down from a simple standing position, just out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, we like, okay. wonder how on earth you would do that. Yeah. Um, and, and so it brings a mindfulness to, sensations in their own body and an awareness of like oh well when my tummy starts to feel this way that means i'm about to get really um nervous or when my neck feels this way it means i'm i'm probably gonna get mad um and well it's so difficult for young children in particular to control their impulses um having that greater sense of the body anyway, at least starts to move them in that direction.
1: Right. Um, yeah. We've seen a lot of progress with, with uh, pro um, as, and, and, you know, m- my wife and I having taught the martial arts for 20 years and not just a normal martial arts school, one that was completely full of kids with uh, autism and ADHD and, 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 and everything that we could actually look, um and i think that a person's body motion the way they move the body when they learned and uh, i mean we we're, we weren't diagnosing but we were dead on when we said hey this one's got this and this one's got that um and, yeah and i i think i mentioned in an email to you that yesterday we attended uh UC Berkeley for graduation
3: right that's congrats
1: yeah that young man came to us he was uh aspergers um he was violent, he was antisocial he would throw ta- chairs at his teachers in school
2: uh, throwing chairs that's a common one
1: <laughs> is it yeah okay yeah. um but he did bring himself into our classes he did it on his own he wanted to change um and you know he had the same thing we saw with all Asperger's that they had no uh you know we tell him to move the right hand and their left foot would move and there was and there's this jerky uh just it's it's just a jerky motion that they have and you know it's it's really strange that you you, we correlate as as his motion developed his Asperger's seemed symptoms seemed to fade away and this was a kid that was going to be put in a group home and yesterday graduated uc berkeley and that's he's
2: phenomenal that's really know.
1: wonderful yeah so um it's it's just really amazing to see and fulfilling to see um and you mentioned the, the visual spatial so the visual spatial has it happens um in the hippocampus of and of course that is where you know the, the logical thinking it starts and sends it to the bfc too so there there, there seems to be some relationship there
2: i'm sure there is um, no. So as I mentioned, you know, the first step towards inhibiting a behavior is even being aware that you are about to do it in the first okay. place. Right. Um, okay. you know, and that's the biggest challenge is most of the time this behavior occurs before the child even is aware that it's about to occur. And, you know, okay. when they get yelled at for something and they, they don't even remember doing it or why they did it. So, okay. um, talking to the child about, well, what was going on for you right before you did that? You know, Mm -hmm. how did your body feel in that moment? Okay. Um,
1: I'm sorry. I had those, a lot of those talks with, with this young man through his development because he would claim, oh, I'm Asperger's. I don't have emotions. And I go, yes, you do. It's just find them, you know? And, and, (laughs) uh, (laughs) um, so yeah, all of those things, that's. I, I, that's, that's fantastic. So it's, but it roots in the, in the mind body awareness and then that allows them to find mm-hmm. how those emotions feel. Is that what we're?
2: Right. Exactly. So always, you know, not just talking about emotions, but talking about how did how did the body feel when you had that emotion?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one thing I'd like to um, suggest for parents that have children that get disre- emotionally dysregulated a lot because that's a very big one with ADHD and autism as well, um, is to create what we call a sensory box. And so it's uh-huh. a box filled with uh, objects that that relate to all of the senses. So it might be, you know, something that feels really nice, something that's joyful to look at, something that smells nice, uh-huh. something that ha- has a nice sound to it if you move it but that the child picks themselves so they're helping to create this sensory box and whenever they experience a really big emotion it's something they can go to hey you know i see that you're really upset right now maybe it's time to pull out the sensory box and have a little chill out time um and so it's an opportunity for the child to learn how to how to regulate themselves without um just you know being told to go to your room for a time out
1: Excellent. Right. I see lots of uh, examples of sensory boxes on Pinterest. So if you oh. search on Pinterest for that, you'll thousands and thousands of results. So that, that, oh, great. that's really okay. popular. Yeah. So, the prefrontal cortex, which you talked about in the beginning. Now I know that as uh, poor guys, we don't get ours developed fully until we're like 27. Is that right? It's
2: not just men. It's, it's you know, humans.
1: <laughs> is it humans really? It's
2: humans. Yeah.
1: So all humans, the PFC is not fully developed until later. It's not just it's, in the teens.
2: Right. It's sometime after age 25, you know, within it, it's going to be different for everyone. And yes, it may mature faster in, in some women than okay. in some men, but um, but it's generally after.
1: But that's you know, a fallacy yeah. that it's just men, huh? <laughs> I did not <laughs> know that.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Really, really. Okay, I feel better then.
2: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh,
1: so if that's so, can ADHD fade as away as the BFC is more developed, that or was I, it not every?
2: Question. So, what we see fading is um, the hyperactive piece. So, uh-huh. generally, as children enter their teen years, uh, that child that just could never sit still and was constantly making noises and and had a whirling, twirling motor inside them, uh-huh. um, that motor will start to settle a little bit, and they might that energy might come out in other less large ways. Like maybe that's the person that's constantly bouncing their knee or drives a little too fast. Um, Uh So we do see that piece waning. Um, What having a fully consolidated prefrontal cortex will do is allow, you know, you to have the fullest access to what yours is capable of, but it's not going to be um, the same or as, functional as a, uh, someone who's neurotypical, um, at that age. So, you know, we don't all come together as one okay. right. <laughs> prefrontal cortex skills. Okay. Um, you know, so you'll still have those struggles, but oftentimes, especially in someone that was diagnosed by the time they're 25, they figured things out. They understand, well, you know, I have trouble with this, and I need to do the following things so that I can be equalized.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Let's talk a little bit about routine. Is it a, a tool for parents? Yes. Uh, okay. Can you yeah. tell how that yeah.
2: helps? Um, structure, well, I mean, structure can be beneficial for all children, really, because it when you know what's expected of you, then it's much easier to perform if the target isn't always moving. Uh Um, And so for a a child with ADHD in particular, um, who's more likely to forget, or, you know, they don't have the ability to, to to listen to multi-step directions. um, If they know that the same, everything is the same every day, and maybe there are visuals that have been set up, you know, it's a picture of a child brushing a tooth, brushing their teeth. And, you know, that can be, they can go check that and see what's next on their list. Um, Then it, it will just help everyone succeed. It also takes the pressure off the parent for constantly yelling what the next step is for the child, because it's predetermined. It's the same next step every day. So it just can help consolidate the learning and, Take the pressure off,
1: I see fantastic, okay, good, so it um helps them focus on on what they need to focus then rather than constantly changes. yeah How important is a diagnosis should should all parents who suspect look for a diagnosis?
2: I know there's a lot of fear about getting a diagnosis because people are afraid their child will be labeled for the rest of their life, you know, okay. by school or, and, and to a certain degree, uh, sure, you know, we can't help um, what other people are going to think or, or how they're going to the judge. Um, but I think that a diagnosis helps people to understand what's feeding the behavior and in a way it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Um because now we have an understanding, and now we know how we can treat it's really hard to to devise a grid treatment if you don't understand what's causing the symptoms
1: mm-hmm. I see good okay very good now uh and tell us a little bit about your books
2: uh, uh, thank you for asking so um the first book is uh a picture book, and it's generally for children three to eight years old to be read, you know, with a parent typically. Um, and it, it's about Charlie who has a whirling twirling motor. He has hyperactive ADHD, although we never come right out and say that in the story. Um, it, it takes him through his day where his um, ADHD is just causing him to um, mess up essentially. And he feels badly and you can tell that he feels badly. Then at the end of the day, his mother tucks him in and tells him that she needs to talk to him, and he thinks he's about to get into trouble. And instead, she reads him his wonderful list. So it you know it has an, a nice little twist of an ending um, and is a little lesson. Um, the right. next book coming out is My Wandering Dreaming Mind, and it's a girl with inattentive ADHD who um, who's daydreaming gets her into trouble all day long as well until her mom has a nice surprise for her at the end. It's not the same as the wonderful list, but it's, you know, something that's feel good.
1: Very good. Very good. Okay. And one more very important question here. Why do you love dragonflies, sunflowers, and flying pigs? (laughs) Oh,
2: Oh, those are testaments to my childhood. Um, We had dragonflies in our yard. I grew up in on the East coast in Massachusetts and we just had these massive dragonflies all over the yard. And um, and we had tall, tall sunflowers growing at the end of the driveway. Um, and the flying pigs, that's way too long of a story to tell here, but <laughs> it's your reminder of my dad who okay. <laughs> passed away 10 years ago.
1: Okay. Well, I share your love of dragonflies and sunflowers. So <laughs> uh, for sure I'm growing sunflowers now and dragonflies oh. are just, uh, amazing. I, I love to watch them. I, I can't imagine that the speed of processing that they have to catch things in midair, right. Just, they are the ultimate predator is why I like them.
2: <laughs> 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 our <laughs> students could use a little bit of that processing, I bet.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So is there anything else that I have not asked that um, our listeners should should know?
2: Um, only that I am happy to be um, of help to anybody that thinks that they could benefit. I work with a lot of people all over the country by phone or, or um, online. Okay. And um, I'm I'm happy to even have a, a, a short call um, to see if I might be of assistance to anyone. So, so they,
1: they don't have to be in your area. You can reach them through technology anywhere.
2: That's right. It's a wonderful thing.
1: It, it it truly is. I actually teach kung fu online, and
3: wow. people, call,
1: people call me crazy for doing that and saying it's impossible. But it, I can guarantee it is not. I have some amazing students online. That's so so
3: cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, it is. We actually that when uh, Google Hangouts on Air, which is what we're using right now, came out, we started it the next week. It was just like this is this is the technology we need, we want. Oh
2: my it, gosh, that's and, fabulous! I love doing yeah. that.
1: That's cool. So, and and where can listeners find you? Your websites?
2: Uh, Uh, com. Okay. That's, and my contact information is there.
1: Okay, great. And we'll link that below. Very good. Well, thank you very much. This has been a a very, very informative interview. and I learned a lot.
0: Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
1: All right. Very good. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Learning Success Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. We also hope you have learned something useful, something that you can take back and improve your life with today. If you would like to say thank you, the best way for you to do that is to share this podcast with a friend. Help us help others along this journey. And if you haven't already, please rate and comment on the podcast. Every rating helps us and helps this podcast get out to more people. We appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thank you again and make today a great day. No one should have to live with a learning difficulty.